opportunity for you to attend as KPFA's guest. And thanks for working a three-hour shift at the fair. If you'd like to sign up for a shift, call Felix at 510-848-6767, extension 629, or email volunteer at kpfa.org. We appreciate your help and hope to see you there. And you are listening to 94.1 FM KPFA here in Berkeley and 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno and online to kpfa.org. It's 3.30. Stay tuned now for Open Book. Welcome to Open Book, cover to cover, as I like to say, frame to frame. My name is Raina Cowan, and I'll be your host for the next half hour as we talk about film, the many elements of film. Today, we're talking about the San Francisco Silent Film Festival. It's having its 20th anniversary, which is remarkable for a number of different reasons, which we'll go into in a minute. Uh, with me to talk about the festival is the artistic director, Anita Manga, who I have known uh, because she's been so connected to Bay Area film in many different forms for years and years, from many years ago when she was the key programmer at uh, the film f- at the Castro Theater, and uh, she's been at the Seattle Film Festival, Palm Springs, and somebody, if you want a, a list of great films, <laughs> she's somebody I always ask, and uh, so Welcome to KPFA. Hi, Raina. So it's really interesting thinking about the San Francisco Silent Film Festival uh, because I had this idea of the film festival, and then I've gone to the film festival, and it feels completely different. Um, like there's some way where initially in my eye, maybe this is I'm a radio person, and audio is so important to me initially. I thought, you know, there's going to be a way that it's going to feel kind of old. Um, fashion, not like old, uh, dynamic and interesting. And I was so amazed that one, that the films are, um, incredibly compelling and sound, although there's music, live music, which of course is an important part, which we'll get into, uh, that there's a way that they were compelling in and of themselves. And then on top of it, I felt like I was learning and understanding a lot about film technique because there was a lot of different experiments that different directors were trying out to communicate what they're saying, both in terms of editing and as well as how the films are shot. So, uh, and then there's the audience, which is a wild group. I mean, it seems like people come from all over the country to attend this festival. They come from all over the world. The world. Actually. Wow. It's uh, what you say about our choices um, in silent film. I like to call them breathtakingly modern because people don't realize that, that uh, I mean, we're picking things that are, have a, a lot of relevance for modern audiences. And we put them with beautiful music. We're very, very thoughtful about pairing them with musicians who take absolute care with their approach to the films they all love the films that we don't ask people to do accompaniments for things that they have no sense of or don't have a a good idea of 
it's um you know we call it live cinema because it is each performance of a silent film with musical accompaniment is going to be a one of a kind experience and it's hard to get people through the door arena i completely understand when people think silent film they think old timey and there was kind of a trope i think when i was a child you'd see um representations of silent film was like a herky-jerky movement and the women with their the backs of their hands their forehead and you know completely melodramatic overacting which did occur in that era, but those aren't the titles that we're choosing. We're choosing some of the finest masterpieces of all cinema, and it was happening at the beginning of cinema. A very exciting, very fruitful moment. One of my favorite things at the, at the Castro Theater is to... Every year, a, a certain number of contemporary filmmakers come to be part of the audience. And watching those filmmakers recognize or get inspiration from from things on screen. I remember seeing Alexander Payne turn around in his seat after after seeing a Swedish film and just saying, that was unbelievably great. So it, it uh, you know, it, the hard thing for us to do is to convince people to step foot in the theater. Once we have them, we have them. Yes, yeah. I think that one year I thought I was going to go for one film, and I wound up staying all day, kind of riveted uh, as uh, the complexities of the stories are unfolding. It's enchanting, I think, too. There's something about being in an auditorium, in a dark auditorium, in a beautiful dark auditorium, with people who are also interested in moving images and live music, beautiful images on screen. It, it just is enchanting. And we try to um, program the festival so it has a flow you know, there's comedy and there's drama and there's there's weird things that are unbelievable. And I'm I'm speaking very specifically about one thing that I'd love people who love weird film. If you like David Lynch, come to see Pan, and it's on uh, Saturday night at 9:30. Unbelievably great, very. Um, very interesting psychology, very, uh, very modern. So what is it? Tell, tell us a little bit about the story of Pan. Pan is based on a New Thompson uh, novel, and it's just essentially, it is almost defies talking about a plot because it's just two people. And you know when they see each other that there is going to be this a bond of desire and love that is not going to end well and it is uh i ask um eddie muller to view the film noir foundation to be a co-presenter because although this is you know there is nothing that you would call noir really in the silent era it's there are many things that prefigure including all of the german expressionists but this is about as Noir in his, his approach to humanity and, and its approach to fatedness and and kind of the dark 
center of of the character's heart. It uh, it's it's beautifully weirdly told. Well, it's it's interesting because it's a film from Norway, and uh, there is a different kind of timing sensibility mm-hmm. than uh, you know that there really was a way that films from different countries already started having kind of a cultural specificity in terms of timing and editing and tone i think i think you may be beyond something scandinavian was scandinavia was very important in that era as it as it continued to be but the kind of uh the kind of of um character driven and willingness to to delineate very complex characters and not to not to have it particularly plot driven it's uh yeah i, I love pan also I, I i was talking about it in terms of film noir there is not a dark moment in the film it takes place in norway in the summer and the light the sun never goes down and and that is oppressive it has the same oppressive quality as darkness does Yes, and the film starts in a way that uh, that's kind of unusual in that we don't meet a character that we fall in love with at the beginning. We actually uh, are wondering who the main character is and who's going to live and who's not going to live and why are we watching this. And uh, that's something that happens now as a radical idea of uh, of having to create an environment where people are eventually going to get pulled into something but it's a brave moment to start a film that way and this was done uh, way back when yes way back when (laughs) (laughs) as all of these things are again i defy people to to uh none of these films i always talk about the festival we're not doing a, a historical representation we're not doing a cast in amber approach to to the film, some of them have uh, very uh, accompaniments that are very authentic to the era, and and some of them do not. But what our approach is is to bring these to breathe life into these texts. They never were shown silently. People always watched silent film with some kind of accompaniment, often bad accompaniment. We're like, we are, we honor these films enough, these great films, to be very thoughtful about the accompaniment. Well, let's think about one of the films. Um, choose one where you have to figure out that, you know, that there's many different ways that music can go. Um, you could have something that is uh, really kind of quiet and moves the plot along you could have something that's atonal that pushes the story in a different way you could have some that have some of the songs that are featured in the film uh, there's like a huge range so when you're choosing a film how do you choose who the right sound is going to be the right kind of music that would go with that piece what do you think about and how do you but once you figure that out how do you talk to the musicians to help facilitate that well essentially i get an idea of who would be interested in in a particular film and who might be able to bring something out of a that that 
might be unexpected, but essentially it is um, the, I feel like the casting director, if you do it well, you're not giving directions to these people, you're picking the right people. And so, for instance, for All Quiet on the Western Front, um, it, it Believe it or not, there's controversy in the silent film world. It was controversial for us to pick the Montalto Motion Picture Orchestra because it's a small ensemble. There are um, six people for this, but they brought in people to do Foley and and sound effects, and and uh, it's going to have a very big sound. But, you know, believe me, we were chastised for not mounting this as a full-scale orchestral um, you know, 50 piece orchestra. I can tell you, you won't be disappointed. It's pretty amazing what Montalcio has done. But they are very interested in, in, um, in searching through the archives to, to, to find things that, uh, that were, and sometimes really unexpectedly, um, appropriate for the era. You know, I wanted to give Mati Bai Ensemble a chance to do Flesh and the Devil, mainly really because Greta Garbo and Lars Hansen are both Swedish. And I wanted to get that kind of, um, that sensibility there too. And also I think that, um, the Mati Bai Ensemble has a, an approach that's very dynamic. They go from very, it drives our sound guy crazy. They go very quiet, very quiet to very loud. And uh, and I think they're very expressive of uh, of love and and uh, beautiful women. <laughs> We're speaking to Anita Manga. The San Francisco Silent Film Festival starts tomorrow, May 28th, and runs through June 1st at the Castro Theater. It's their 20th anniversary. Now, you know, when I sometimes when I hear about a film, I picture it in advance in my head and uh, sometimes I'm pleasantly surprised, other times I'm disappointed that what I imagined didn't happen so if we add music <laughs> are there times when you wind up hearing the score and you think, that's really not what I imagined but it's really uh, it created a frisson that's uh-huh. beyond what I imagined or uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, I think last year The Navigator, uh, the Matibai Ensemble did a, a score for The Navigator that um, Buster Keaton's The Navigator. Uh, I'm, I think I'm right. Was it The Navigator last year? Yes. Um, that was a that was very unexpected. I didn't I didn't know that they were going to go in a certain direction, and it worked. I was at first I was like, oh no, <laughs> but then it really it really honored um, Keaton's amazing physicality and uh, absurd humor. Well, speaking of physicality and absurd humor, I had never really heard of Charlie Bowers before. And uh, I I found, uh, who was an American cartoonist who Mm -hmm. became a filmmaker, and his films were playing a lot with things being present and then disappearing. Right. You know, uh, that there was all this, this... wild editing right. um, and creating a, a sense of comedy and farce that was just delightful and his his facial expressions in the 
innocence. It was wonderful. How did how did you track him down? And I understand that he's somebody that's getting more recognized now than he did before. Well, Serge Bromberg was a, a, a big proponent of Charlie Bowers, and in fact, there's a um, a, a lovely DVD set put out by Flickr Alley, I'm pretty sure, um, in any event, Lobster Films in in uh, in, in France. And, you know, the, uh, Serge is an enthusiast and, and, and uh, you know, it wasn't as if Charlie Bowers was completely unknown to cineast. I just got an email from Peter Scarlett who was like, I showed Charlie Bowers years ago. And absolutely, it, he was just new to me and new to, and I think new, will be new to many of our audience. Um, complete, um, you know, the, uh, whimsical characters who, again, they, you know, he was playing with the medium of film. He got to do things that w- could not happen in real life. And he did them seamlessly. He really, he had the chops to pull off that kind of special effects that, uh, you know, had an eggplant grow and, uh, you know, you chip into the eggplant and there's a egg and a cellar of salt within the eggplant. You know, it's, it's lovely and absurd and, you know, sometimes really very corny humor told in a, in a slightly surrealistic way. Yeah, I love it. And Serge is going to be accompanying those films on the piano. And Serge has an amazing entertainer's way of, of he'll set up each film as he, before he plays it. Oh, that's wonderful. So the film festival has both high art and kind of low art, I oh, guess. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> that's what, that's what it's meant to do, huh? Well, I'm wondering about, uh, if there's filmmakers who are in this festival who went on to make talkies, you know how that there's a way, like I wonder how um, if one studied Hitchcock and the films he made during the silent era and then he, you look at the films that he made afterwards and what he learned from the silent era. I don't know if any of these people have done that and uh, what you've noticed. The interesting thing that you brought up about Hitchcock, because we just did that Hitchcock 9 series, I feel like Hitchcock was one of those rare things, weird people. He he was there at the beginning of a of a very new art, and he was a filmmaker from day one. His very first film, he knew how to place a camera. He knew what to do for maximum effect. He he he. You you know he, you could see he was thinking in terms of sound and what and what it would be and what a character needed to do to express that the sound happened in another room, very which not everybody did in in the silent era. Sometimes they just pretend like you know nobody they you know nobody could hear on film so you know no that character within the film couldn't hear you know completely absurd things you know I think. Unfortunately, F.W. Murnau, who made The Last Laugh, was going on to do beautiful things in the sound era and was killed on a, on a highway, on Highway 1, I think, on the way to Santa Barbara. Um, but, you know, he was making the switch over to sound. His 
I would have really been very happy to see everything that he did. Last Laugh is a, such an interesting film. So it's, it takes place in Germany, and it's somebody who initially is like a, a a doorman in this very intense kind of Prussian suit, and then something happens, and his whole life changes. Right. He takes very a lot of pride in his suit. He's dressed, again, like a Prussian, generally works as a doorman to the hotel, and and then he gets a demotion, and essentially he gets a demotion to the to the uh, you know washroom in in the hotel and his suit gets taken away from him and his suit kind of made him the dandy of his neighborhood the lower class neighborhood he was always you know the guy with the fancy suit and and to see what happened to his character it's it's a very very moving film very beautifully told too. Murnau made it virtually without any intertitles at all. There, I mean, there are a couple things that are, you know, expressed in intertitle, but you you really don't have to show it with any intertitle at all. Um, and you know, Emil Jannings is very moving as that character of a vainglorious, you know, a bit of a jerk you know who gets laid low and then you get to see the the humanity in this person and how sad that is yeah the last half is one of the greatest films ever made it is so extraordinary and we're very pleased you know the berkeley college of music um film scoring class is going to accompany that they wrote a new score for it it's our first collaboration with uh, the berkeley college well, so that the filmmaker moved to the States after making this film? Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. And, uh, yeah, he was, you know, the Hollywood was getting the best of all the, all the Germans, <laughs> you know, so. So when you say that it's like one of the best of the best, what, what, like, what are you noticing about that film that makes it stand out in that kind of way? Well, it's really extraordinary. It's told in this, again, without intertitles, and you don't need them, where you can come away not really understanding that you haven't heard anyone speak or haven't read what anyone said. So the storytelling is such that it's so compelling that it doesn't need a lot of words. And uh, People called it the, the unchained camera, um, Murnau's camera drifted in and out and, 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 and not in an obnoxious way that will make you sick to your stomach watching it, but in this beautiful lyrical way, very expressive of, of a, of a scene. And it's, and it's also a film dealing with very, um, very adult and very intelligent, um, questions of capitalism and, you know, in, in, uh, your place in society it's a very um it's a very mature work made by an artist at the top of his game it's by actor who also at the top of his game very interesting and very beautiful the the um black and white cinematography is so rich and dense and beautiful 
That, yes, it, it, it is one of the greatest films ever made. Uh, you ask about people who went on to make movies in the sound era. Uh, you know, Frank Capra is one. You know, this, and in fact, the film that we are showing at, at the at the time of the late twenties and and at the late twenties, people were experimenting with sound and trying to. And there was a, a process called the Vitaphone. Capra made this film with the Vitaphone soundtrack. The people made um, two copies generally, a, a silent copy with intertitles uh, inserted for the theaters that couldn't had didn't make quite make the transition yet, and then the sound versions that had the Vitaphone things. Um, the silent version has been lost. There is, can't find the silent version. The sound version is is exists as a print at the Library of Congress, but there is no sound to it. There is so absolutely no no way to tell what was on the soundtrack, except for Bruce Goldstein of the Film Forum in New York. Searched and searched for a, a shooting script. He had this grand idea to put together a, a, a coterie of, of character actors to give voice to this film, and that's exactly what they did, and exactly what is going to be performed at the Castro. So it's going to be um, these character actors who have an affinity for for uh, the acting in that that early thirties um, method of that kind of voicing you'll, you'll see it's hilarious so um capra's first all 100 percent talkie lost its voice and now has found it through bruce goldstein and we're calling them the gower gulch players oh that's so interesting it's almost like you have the opportunity to see something flat and then you make it kind of 3d and then you present it to the audience, and then it becomes alive in a whole new way. Exactly, exactly. And they're going to be, you know, and they do it with live foley also. And, and foley means like that the, the sound effects. Uh huh. Oh, the horse yeah, that just yeah. entered the room. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah. So you know the sound effects, the you know the music. Uh, one of the the um, the pianist who's playing in this group. It plays a, a spoke, speaking part too, and he is hilarious. I just saw a, there was a rehearsal run through in a hotel in San Francisco last night, and uh, yeah, they're really all pretty amazing. <laughs> That's so exciting. Now, do you think that the people, who, um, I mean, this is total speculation, but people who made silent films, do you think that they have the sense that these would be films that would be so valued? Uh, a uh, hundred years later, I think that some did. I think that Murnau did. I think that people who were who were very, I think that for instance Stanley Kubrick. I think that every film he made, he made it as if it were going to last a thousand years. Same with Murnau. And there, not, there was nothing left to chance. Nothing that was, you know, oh, that's good enough. Those films were made to last. All Quiet on the Western Front, I think, is one of those. Um, you know, Flesh and the Devil, Clarence Brown, an amazing filmmaker. Um, you know, is there any number of, of, of directors who had the, who had the chutzpah to think they were making things that, 
you know, they have the experience of still watching Shakespeare plays. So why wouldn't like a particular art last forever? We're talking to Anita Manga, who is the artistic director for the San Francisco Silent Film Festival, which starts tomorrow and runs through June 1st. Um, I'm Raina Cowan with her. I just want to know, is there a dress code for this event? Uh, clothes. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's on Castro Street. There was a period of time when there were the naked guys walking around. <laughs> no, there is not a dress code, although some people do love to come in 20s garb, and that's fun. But we just encourage people to come with open hearts and open mind and, and, uh, and really the capacity to... Um, like you, when you came for one film, to just say, hell, I'm going to stay for another or two. Yes, and this, the the chance, I mean, we didn't really get to talk about it, but it, it does feel like a different kind of performance when there's the music there and there's the people. So it's wonderful. So I want to thank you so much. San Francisco Silent Film Festival starts tomorrow at the Castro Theater. The website is silentfilm.org. I want to thank you so much for joining us. Anita Manga from the Film Festival. My name is Raina Cowan. I'll be back next month to talk more about film. Thanks so much for listening. This is Nina Serrano inviting you to be sure to tune in on Wednesday, June 3rd at 3.30 p.m. to Open Book, Poet to Poet. My guests will be Elaine Ellenson. This new volume of Langston Hughes' Letters gives us greater insight into Hughes' own dreams and the experiences and passions that shaped his writing. And Greg Bridges. Good morning, Revolution. You're the best friend I ever had. We're going to pal around together from now on. Say, listen, Revolution, you know the boss where I used to work? The guy that gave me the air to cut expenses. He wrote a long letter to the papers. We'll be featuring the new book of selected letters of Langston Hughes, just published by Knopf. It's going to be a literary...